The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of Not-Self. And the looking glass being a reflecting mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. And beginning with uh, something that was sent to me by a, a, a Dhamma teacher friend, and this is uh, something she ha- uh, got from one of her students. What are you? My young son shouts gleeful at, gleefully at me several times a day over the past year. In his world, being is fluid. He's now a cheetah, now a crocodile, now a spaceman, now an earthworm. At the zoo, he tries on each new animal as we move from one exhibit to the next. Initially, I tried to play along. I'm a butterfly. He'd look at me critically. No, your mama. (laughs) My responses became mundane. I am your mom. I am a woman named Paloma. I am tired. I'm trying to put your shoes on. He was entirely neutral to any response. For a time, I was profoundly annoyed with the question, internally wincing at each repetition. Leaning in, I came to understand understand this not as an irritation with my son, but with the effort it takes to constantly try to figure myself out. Eventually, I dropped the effort. The question became an invitation to wake up. My mindfulness bell. A tiny Buddha master shouting my own personal koan at me. What are you? Exactly. The question resonates in the open silence of awareness. Answers still pop up. Both mundane and philosophical in turns. I am a river of being. I am annoyed. I am adoring. I am thoughts, feelings, and sensations. The flow of life passing right through the open door of my mind. And from Rumi, this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Which quirk of your life, experienced perhaps as an irritation, an effort, a task, a sensation, a recurring question, might be your mindfulness bell in disguise? Over a period of years during my childhood and on through adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. 
and in these dreams I would be standing looking at the mir- looking in the mirror at myself looking in the mirror back and back and smaller and smaller myself looking at myself in the mirror seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror endlessly At times I was amazed by this dream, I was fascinated by it, intrigued by it at times. And if I thought about it very much, uh, I'd feel quite perplexed by it. But mostly I was just really interested in it. Interested enough that in fact it's the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing uh, from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life. Beginning when at the age of 16 I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I um, was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then I had a very distinct feeling of touching into a very deep place of coming home. And the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. This evening we'll explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some reason, uh, or for some, it, though it might really be an intriguing uh, a reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe more a more overt, uh, overt fear. In its essence, this truth is really so basic, so simple, And that with even just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through uh, or lifting the thin veil of concept, of an idea, a belief that separates us from the reality of not-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, that, it. Within the context of our immediately or our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined context of the possible future or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes and fears and beliefs. To relinquish the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self-identities. It's important to recognize that 
in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw our self out. It's not that. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. It's not that at all. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as ourself, everything we believe to be ourself, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. What we call our self, on one level, is a subtle and yet clearly discernible active phenomena or process that we can sense and feel and see and know directly through our practice. One aspect of this that's very readily available to know experientially is the body as a process. And we've talked about this uh, on this retreat already a couple of times. This body as a process of many elements. The earth element with its characteristics of hardness and roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The water element with its characteristics of flowing and cohesion. The fire element with its characteristics of heat and coldness. And the air or the wind element with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elemental characteristics being in constant flux in and of themselves and in relationship to each other. Our so-called body, our so-called self as our body or my body is in constant flux, a process in constant flux. So, in truth, there's nothing, no thing to attach to, nothing to cling to. And as you may know, at least to some degree, essentially all of the Buddha's teachings lead to this. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at ourselves. And look with such sincerity, humility, and willingness that we begin to see our self more accurately. Begin to see through our self by directly and experientially, essentially experiencing things in themselves. Essentially experiencing things in themselves with all, without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached. Without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually really quite simple. Maybe not so easy, but actually really very simple. We're sitting here in retreat, or we're at work, at our desk, or We're at home on the couch. Pleasant 
is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, these occurrences, are merely, are just themselves. And as the great Thai meditation master Ajahn Chah says, there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there's no real, no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, we could say that there's no real sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. And from the Chinese sage Nan Shin, I think I shared this early on at another point in this retreat, by not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. So we experience this and that. Everything. Anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without claiming ownership and without investing interpretation in interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see? So, for instance... We think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we become, how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that they are not self, is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and with humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. 
the knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there is self and that things belong to self will gradually begin to untangle, will come gradually undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally steadily develop and increase. Can we observe experience? Can we inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention? It's really only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what's being observed, what's being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling. Merely heat, merely an ache in the chest, or a tingling moving through the body. Merely a thought arising and passing. No duality as it's sometimes spoken of. Not two. Just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training ourselves again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts and bodily sensations and other sense door experiences, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal process can the power of a deeply rooted egocentric the power of deeply rooted egocentric thoughts habits and self-centered inclinations begin to be loosened reduced relinquished and maybe at some point finally eliminated It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, come to know not-self. And then, for just a moment or two, or and eventually longer, and maybe finally, It's not all about me. And the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine, that's based in the fear of losing something, is no longer there. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind is free. And this can happen at any moment. And I'm sure that it has happened at a moment or two or more for many of you. In some words from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. 
Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. It's a heavy load, a burden to carry ourself around. This body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all of the hopes, all of the fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around all the things of life in the form of thoughts, feelings, various opinions, perceptions, beliefs, believing that they're mine, that they're me, that they're myself. There's a kind of sting that we feel in hauling around all the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership and a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly that we simply and genuinely Don't get entangled. Don't get stung. Don't get caught up with it. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. And life still happens. We make use of things in the world as is appropriate. And we keep looking and seeing We keep living life, and in fact, living life with a much more fresh and a fuller uh, immediacy in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher in our life here in retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting. in a poem by the Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield. Only, and the title she gives it is, Only When I Am Quiet and Do Not Speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, Hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking, the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet there's is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that. For I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant the actual instant. 
as if they believed it possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice when we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. So. For instance, do I reside, do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath at the nostrils me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? Or in the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? We might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot, not the sensation of the in-breath. But certainly my mind, certainly my conscious mind is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? I think it's fair to say that one of the things most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. But the truth is that the very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, unborn. So right now, just for a moment, close your eyes and look into your own mind, your own heart, for just a moment now. Maybe for a second or a moment, you sense and see its empty nature. Like experiencing zero, as one of my Burmese teachers, Pawak Sayadaw, says. In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world.
And so the Buddha, coming directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It too arises and passes away, moment by moment, just like every other conditioned phenomena. It too is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors, no matter how gross or subtle that object may be. It too is dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It too is dependent on the mental labels and constructs and clinging that arise in the conscious mind through contact with some object. To make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six doors of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind or mind phenomena consciousness. There are two uh, very short suttas that I'd like to share with you. Both come from the Samyutta Nikaya. The first is uh, between a deva, one of the devas, uh, and uh, the Buddha. And I don't know if I shared this earlier or not. The deva, and some of you may not know this, so a deva is, <clears throat> in, the, in the Buddha's teachings, <clears throat> and understanding is a being that's uh, uh, quite pure uh, and and has a lot of understanding, has a lot of insight, but is not yet uh, totally free of suffering. So the devas asks uh, the Buddha, what produces a person? What does he or she have that runs around? What enters upon samsara? What is his or her greatest fear? From what is she or he not yet freed? What determines his or her destiny? And the Buddha responds, Craving is what produces a person. His or her mind is what runs around. (laughs) A being enters upon samsara. Suffering is his or her greatest fear. She or he is not freed from suffering. Kama determines his or her destiny. And the second uh, little short conversation is between Buddha, the Buddha and Ananda, the the Buddha's chief disciple. And Venerable Ananda speaks first and he says, and he's speaking to the Buddha. Venerable Sir, it said, empty is the world, empty is the world. In what way is it said, empty is the world? And the Buddha responds, It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? 
The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I consciousness, I contact, and he goes through each of the sense doors, <clears throat> sense door consciousnesses in this way, ending with mind consciousness. And whatever feelings arise with mind consciousness as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor painful, that too is empty of, de- of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. <clears throat> and uh, a similar teaching from the perspective of 8th century Chinese sage, another Dhamma mirror. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death and no absolute (laughs) life. And another uh, piece from uh, Buddhist poet Jim Harrison, a wonderfully simple poem from Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, (laughs) to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow, to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we uh, begin to move into the last uh, section of this evening's talk, I'll offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image or in relationship to the particular words that I'll be speaking. And if an image doesn't come easily for you, don't struggle with it. Just simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So sitting comfortably, close your eyes. Visualizing in 
visualizing or in some way sensing an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your mind, fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. And now let the image, let the felt sense dissolve. Just let it go. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and many-faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self. This is the ground of understanding not-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, I'm sure that many of you find that more and more often you act from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity of the understanding that there is only relationship. There is only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. 
There's no separate, no isolated, (coughs) independent you. No separate, isolated, independent me. And from Shantideva, a century Buddhist monk. Again, I think I shared this in the Compassion Talk, but never hurts to listen to Shantideva again. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, What's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second uh, guided meditation. So again, comfortable, sitting comfortably, easy, in your body, closing your eyes. In the mind's eye, the eye of wisdom which is centered in the heart, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. Relaxing and staying open and present with this. And now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving, changing shape, dissolving, New clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the mind, the heart rest in the openness of the sky, in the vast openness and not fixating on any cloud. Just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away.
if at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless sky-like space. And now let the image and the felt sense fade away. And just sit for a moment, letting the heart, the mind open wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. Who is aware? Who knows? And now bring the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing. and just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass with willingness and humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in and we keep looking. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. We see that everything, all things are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there is no thing that satisfies, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in a sustaining way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us fully and truly happy and at ease. And so we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror 
of ourself, going back and back into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open and more all-encompassing and at the same time more spacious. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something or some solid rendition of I, some solid rendition of me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. In this there's no solid, separate I or other. In this essential emptiness there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease, even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and around us that we clearly see and know. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems. Really the greatest problems the greatest suffering that we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, solid, static, separate entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. I'd like to share a a story with you, a true story, um, about a friend of mine who was suffering uh, with this core loneliness. Uh, And so he decided to uh, seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. And with advice um, from friends, he picked a therapist that had uh, a Buddhist spiritual orientation. When he called to make an appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for his first therapy session. So he uh, arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different sizes, this is true, of all different sizes and shapes and colors. And he set them down on the floor in the waiting room. And then he went out to his car and he got another load of baggage of all different sizes, shapes, and colors. And he came in and piled those on top of the first load. (laughs) He told me, and he also told the therapist, that he had to go around collecting baggage uh, from, from friends and family because he said he didn't have enough of his own. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office for his appointment, he, of course, took all of his baggage in with him. And at some point, this is really true, honestly, this really did happen. At some point during the first session with this therapist, the therapist, in her great wisdom, asked my friend to 
open up all of the baggage that he'd brought in with him, which he did. He did it and he found that there was nothing inside any of it. <laughs> A very wise therapist. Of course, it's not every client that you could do this with. But this particular man was obviously quite ready for such a pointing out. I don't know if he ever went back for any more therapy sessions. I didn't ask him. (laughs) He maybe didn't need to after that. (laughs) When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And at some point, there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of a great relief, like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature and just simply set it down. There's a, an old teaching story uh, that uh, I, I like a lot that I'd like to share with you. Um, the stories of an old woman, or not, well, maybe somewhat old, middle-aged, or somewhere up in there, who had practiced for many years. And she'd had some very powerful, um, expansive, and even illuminating experiences. But still she hadn't reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and feeling that there really wasn't very much time left. And she so wanted freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see uh, the wise one who she'd heard uh, was able to turn the mind, to turn the heart to the truth. As she was nearing the end of her very arduous um, hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel uh, on his way down uh, passed her. And uh, just as uh, he passed, the woman uh, stopped and she called out to him. And he stopped and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise old one who lived on the top of the mountain. And she explained to this fellow who was walking down the mountain that she was on her way up to see this being and Uh, because she wanted to know the deepest truth. She wanted to really understand ultimate wisdom so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. She explained uh, that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and anguish and striving. And she told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one up at the top of the mountain might be able to be the one to reveal this to her. So the old man stood there, listened, stood very still, looked at her briefly, and then uh, taking his time, he slowly turned around and he continued walking down the mountain for just a few steps. And then he stopped again and briefly stood still, and then very slowly uh, turning around towards the woman, And then he very carefully and very slowly took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, 
turned around again and walked on down the mountain toward the village. She really didn't have to go all the way up to the top of the mountain to meet that guy. She met him part way up. <laughs> Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in the world as is appropriate. And we keep exploring and living life, sensing and seeing and understanding. And in fact, living life more freshly and more fully, right in the immediacy of here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And the wing of compassion, the our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, of all things, and is the relative aspect of understanding not-self. This is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. In closing the talk with two short pieces from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. First one, seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. And the second piece from the Udana. In this one he's speaking to his disciple Bahia. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia, there is for you in the scene only the scene. In the herd, 
only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized. You see that there is no thing here. And you see that there is no thing here. You will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.